Listener. Social media writ large is is a problem. Uh, the issue that distinguishes TikTok and other Chinese platforms from the Western platforms is the association with the Chinese government. Justin Bassey is a very long way of saying Bass, which is what we've always called him. He was my national security advisor when I was prime minister. He is brilliant and funny, very, very smart. He's been a spook, doesn't talk a lot about that. He was there with me when we were standing up to Donald Trump on one hand and Xi Jinping on the other. And now he's the director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And nobody is better placed than Justin to talk about the security implications of technology in general and of TikTok in particular. So, Bass, it's great to see you and great to be with you again. Uh, Malcolm, it is absolutely a pleasure to be here. There are a few repressed memories, but mainly only great memories. Oh, well, that's good. Well, look, this is not a therapy session, but if you do want to sort of have some outpourings, I'm I'm just (laughs) dripping with empathy, as you know. Now, we're talking about TikTok. So, recently banned in Montana. It's been banned on government devices in Australia. You know, there are people who are arguing it should be banned full stop. What is different about TikTok from a national security point of view? There are multiple risks and threats uh, when it comes to uh, uh, TikTok and Chinese platforms more broadly, but uh, there are two broad categories. The first risk and the one that is most talked about, perhaps because it's easy to understand for politicians or commentators uh, is the data privacy risk. Uh, TikTok user data is accessible to engineers based in China, uh, and the company has no plans to sever that access. So that exposes user data to potential misuse, particularly considering the close ties between ByteDance, TikTok's parent company, uh, and uh, the Chinese uh, government. Well, Bass, Bass just, just, just to cut in on that. So ByteDance... Chinese company has to do the bidding of the Communist Party. I mean, there's no no point being mealy-mouthed about this. The Communist Party has complete hegemony in China and any Chinese company ultimately has to act on the directions of the party and fulfil the requirements of the intelligence services. So that's the law. So except you've got to recognise that. Uh, Yes, uh, absolutely. So that's the the first risk. The, The second category of risk, and in my view, Uh, the broader risk to society uh, is content manipulation. TikTok could influence its video recommendations to align with the geopolitical goals uh, of the Chinese Communist Party. Have any moderation tools been used to remove content on TikTok associated with the Uyghur genocide? Yes or no? We do not remove uh, that kind of content. TikTok is a place of freedom of expression and challenges, like I said. If you use our app, you can go on it and you will see a lot of users around the world. What about the massacre in Tiananmen Square, yes or no? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. Uh, The massacre in Tiananmen Square. That kind of content is available on our platform. You can go and search it. I will remind you that making false or misleading statements to Congress is a federal crime. Can you say with 100% certainty that ByteDance or the CCP cannot use your company or its divisions to heed content to promote pro-CCP messages for an act of aggression against Taiwan? We do not promote 
or remove content at the request of the Chinese government. Uh, and this won't necessarily mean uh, that it will be as obvious as a as a for you feed showing how wonderful uh, Xi Jinping is. Uh, but uh, what it what it really means is that the uh, the outward facing content uh, is manipulated, censored, or deprioritized. Uh, and uh, an example could mean that in a political campaign, uh, the uh, a political party A's message uh, could be suppressed. Uh, while political party B's message could be supported. You know, we know there are 7 million TikTok users in Australia. TikTok uh, has uh, lots of data about those people. It would know their age, their likes, where they live, where they go. It would know a lot more about any of its subscribers than the Australian government would, for example. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Yeah, and so it's in a position, it would be in a position in an election to target videos and information pushing one point of view or giving rise to one anxiety or another to a very select group where you, the, the sort of fight targeted marketing that, you know, political parties dream of, but it would be able to do that as a foreign actor. Now, that's enormous power, but also isn't there this fact or issue? Whereas with Twitter and Facebook, you can see what is on the whole platform? Now, obviously, you can't, neither of us individually can because we don't have enough hours in the day, but, you know, using the right devices, you can. Whereas with TikTok, there, you can't actually see the entirety of it from outside. The only thing you can see is the feed that you get. And so if, for example, you're the uh, federal police or ASIO or whoever, uh, and you're trying to get an idea of what TikTok is serving up to 16-year-olds in Canberra, you've got to create a whole series of sock puppet accounts which filling in the relevant demographic information to say you're 16 and have the following interests and so forth, and that may give you an approximation. But ultimately, am I right in believing that the only people that know what, you know, Billy Smith, age 16, in Canberra is seeing on his TikTok screen is Billy himself and TikTok. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's my, that's my view. But, but And there's a further nuance to it. The only uh, people who would know whether the information uh, that Billy is seeing is accurate or not uh, would be TikTok. Billy wouldn't have that ability. Uh, and so it's not just a hypothetical either, Malcolm, that Someone uh, who works at Aspie has been uh, looking at this for years, Fergus Ryan. Uh, he looked at the 2020 election campaign in the US and the it was US TikTok executives themselves who noticed that videos from certain creators uh, during the election campaign uh, were mysteriously dropping from 30 to 40% uh, on the platform. Uh, and when they made through the US uh, inquiries, they found out that it was a team in China had made a change to the algorithm uh, to play down political conversations uh, about the election. Uh, and then uh, last year, uh, 2022, TikTok blocked an estimated 95% of content previously available to Russians, uh, according to a, a great little not-for-profit in Europe called AI Forensics. Uh, and in addition to that mass restriction, the censorship of content, 
AI forensics also uncovered a network of coordinated accounts that were using a loophole to post pro-war propaganda uh, in Russia on the platform. So what that meant was that at the start of Putin's war on Ukraine, TikTok was effectively turned into a 24-7 propaganda channel for the Kremlin. So why shouldn't it be banned? Uh, and I mean, let me, uh, I, and the political argument for that, I say that as an old politician, is because there's 7 million people using it and liking it, and it would be hugely unpopular. But let's, let's have a little reality check here. There is no way a Chinese Communist Party-controlled entity, a People's Republic of China-based company, could buy a television station in Australia, right? Inconceivable. Would never be allowed. Don't even think about it. Any more than an Australian company could buy a television station in China. Yes. Now, you know, TikTok is accessing more people, more eyeballs if, and yes. more hours of attention, I would suggest, than any of our networks right now. So we've allowed a company, a media company, that is controlled by the Chinese Communist Party to have this enormous share of attention in Australia. Is, isn't that a powerful argument for it to be banned? Uh, well, it, it's, uh, it is. Uh, it, it's a powerful argument for us to be aware of that and to be talking about it. Montana became the first state to ban TikTok yesterday, citing fears that the app's Chinese-owned parent company could be providing Americans' data to the Chinese government. We're 18, we're all 18. Like, let me share my information with China if I want to. Like, I literally could care less. In Australia, there's 7 million users. I think in the US, there's 100 million users. Uh, it's easier if you're India and you prohibit or ban before the platform uh, makes such a mark. Part of the problem we have here is that if we only look at one platform at a time, there is a real chance that we play whack-a-mole and we, we're probably going to lose that. So in my view, we should never take the prospect of a comprehensive ban off the table. But I think we do what was done uh, around the 5G policy uh, in 2017, 2018, and it needs to be more uh, comprehensive. We need to look at standards uh, and we need to uh, have the same application for all social media companies and internet companies. Bass, let, let me run an idea past you. You know, as you know, I've been involved in the media business one way or another for a very long time. And for most of my life, when we talked about media, we were concerned about foreign ownership. We didn't like foreign ownership. We seem to have got over that uh, some time ago. And we were concerned about monopoly. So when Murdoch was allowed by the Labor government of Hawke, Paul Keating as treasurer, to buy the Herald and Weekly Times group in 87, which gave him domination of the newspaper business, uh, a lot of people thought that was a very bad idea, myself included. But and so we thought that we've often thought the solution is diversity. Now, the reality is we have more media voices out there than ever before. So diversity and plurality is not really an issue. But the problem is that they're not actually balancing each other anymore. And, you know, I, I, I like to refer to this as the senior common room school of media, which is a, it's a sort of a, uh, I think a very elitist and out of date view, and it's, but what the one that most of us have, and you know how you walk into the senior common room of a you know a college or a university, and you'll have a you know a table there, and it'll have all of the newspapers and magazines laid out, and you'll you know you'll have the 
the New Statesman and the Spectator, you'll have the Guardian and the Telegraph, you'll have, you know, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, you know, you'll have all of the, you'll have left and right, you know, the Australian and the, the Guardian or the Herald, you know, you'll have, you'll have a different range of papers and stuff. And that's, that's all fine and I guess they, people who look at all of them get a, can form a balanced view. But nowadays people are living in their own media silos much of which is determined by the algorithms that deliver them their TikTok stream or their Facebook stream or their Twitter stream or their YouTube stream. And where they do watch mainstream media, increasingly, and this is particularly a problem in the United States, they're watching highly opinionated uh, yeah. media and Fox News being, you know, the, the biggest, uh, both the biggest in terms of viewers and I think the worst in terms of bias, uh, which is you know, very strongly opinionated and really more propaganda than news. And so if you say Fox News is out there on the right and MSNBC is out there on the left, it'd be nice to be able to say, well, they balance each other, but they don't because the people who watch Fox don't watch MSNBC and vice versa. Do, Do you think that we have got to, you know, having grown up on a diet of diversity and competition and, you know, free speech is critically important and, you know, let everybody express their views and, you know, out of this torrent of different views, the truth will prevail. Do you think we're we're getting back to the world where we've got to say, hang on, we're in a mess when it comes to misinformation and disinformation and we need to apply some objective requirements on major players in the media business and media platforms. Now, they could be fit and proper person requirements. I mean, but when I was young, I, you know, I was a young lawyer. I represented Packer for years. The you to get a broadcasting license, whether it was a TV license or a radio license, you had to demonstrate every three years that you were a fit and proper person. And, you know, often Kerry's fitness was challenged, particularly when he was, you know, in all the strife with Costigan. And so I battled for him on all of that. But that doesn't seem to be an issue anymore. I'm not quite sure when that was when that was removed. And and of course, nobody would dream has apparently dreamt of applying any of that to to Twitter or or Facebook or let alone um, TikTok. You know, I mean, I, I, have we we've got into this we've got into this situation where where so many of these big platforms, whether they're mainstream media or social media, have got such enormous access, direct access to our citizens, and yet they don't seem to have any obligation to be fit and proper people, to be objective, to tell the truth, to be balanced, to not engage in propaganda. I mean, it's as though the the government, governments, and including the one I led, have basically just stepped back and said, let it rip. What do you think? I mean, does something need to be done? Uh, well, uh, short answer is yes. Uh, as you know, I rarely have short answers, but uh, short answer is yes. The problem is that we treat the online world differently. Uh, we always have, and now is time that we've got to recognise uh, that uh, a phrase that we, that uh, I remember you using uh, um, uh, back in your time as PM. It, it has carried on in terms of uh, the laws that apply offline have, have got to apply online. Uh, we've got to actually now act on that. And uh, I think the thesis that you're setting out is accurate. If you have a look at, at the last 20 years, 
every time governments and uh, open societies have made decisions and assessments on uh, what we should do with the online world, we've unfortunately so often got it wrong. We've got the big ones wrong. So if you go back to 2000, Malcolm, when the first sort of questions were being asked about China and the internet, it was Bill Clinton saying, well, don't have to worry because controlling the internet will be like nailing jello to the wall. Uh, and of course, Moscow and Beijing proved him and everyone else wrong. They controlled the internet and used it against us. Then the Arab Spring happened, 2009, 2010, and uh, intelligence agencies, including that which I've been in, uh, in Australia, around the world, uh, government said, well, social media, the anarchy of social media will mean that authoritarian and centralised regimes will never be able to, to succeed. Again, Beijing and Moscow proved us completely wrong. We can't afford, with, with, with the tech revolution that we're going to go into now, particularly with uh, AI, um, we can't afford to make a, a third mistake. This issue is so central to the maintenance of our democracy. I mean, politics and democracy operates in a media ecosystem. You know, that's the sea, the ocean in which, you know, all the political fish swim. And it is a very different media ecosystem than what it was 20 years ago, 10 years ago, let alone 30 years ago. I think we've, uh, through a, an absence of mind and insouciance, we've allowed features to develop and actors to rise up who are actually undermining our democracy and threatening our democracy. So the, the bottom line is that, that in a sense we've kidded ourselves that by deregulating, opening up our media landscape, particularly to social media, without regulation, without oversight, we've now got a situation where perhaps not so much in Australia, but certainly in the US, I mean, that country is more divided, more angry yeah. than it's been since the Civil War. And the object of America's enemies, and indeed our enemies, has always been to divide us and to distract us and to mislead us. I mean, that you know, that's what information operations, propaganda operations are all about. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. A, a little, a, a very a small story uh, that really, I think, typifies uh, what you just said. We are coming up to the US uh, presidential uh, election, of course, next year. One of the candidates on the Democrat uh, side uh, is Robert Kennedy Jr., um, uh, the son of RFK. Uh, he is a conspiracy theorist. RFK Jr. is one of the biggest voices pushing anti-vaccine rhetoric, regularly distributing misinformation and disinformation about vaccines. I've come here today to announce my candidacy for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. Uh, and he's uh, using uh, social media and platforms, including, as you say, Fox, but using social media to amplify uh, his, uh, his message. So we, we have a massive social media problem here that we need to address. He's, he's basing his campaign off anti-vaccine conspiracies. He's previously espoused views that 5G harms human DNA. Uh, he actively says that the CIA killed his uncle, JFK. The First Amendment protects conspiracy theories. The First Amendment protects things that are untrue. And the remedy for bad speech is more speech. How do we deal with the algorithms that drive the social media platforms? You know, it isn't an accident that you are served particular videos on YouTube 
or posts on Facebook or on Twitter, there is an algorithm there that is working out what to send you and its job is to keep you on that platform. So it is ultimately about getting your attention. Now, the problem is the way to get your attention is to keep firing you up. If you've been looking at some uh, posts of Donald Trump's, then the algorithm says, oh, well, you know, Bassie's obviously got some uh, interests that we might uh, see. Let's, let's, let's see. Let's see how he goes. We'll serve him a bit of you know, stuff about the Confederacy. Oh, he likes that. Okay, we'll serve him a bit of white supremacist stuff. Oh, good. We might, then we'll move on to some really racist stuff. You know, what I've described as a very abbreviated and extreme example. But the bottom line is that that is completely lacking in transparency. I mean, you know, if, if you think about it, every media outlet has always sought to keep its viewers. So they didn't have an algorithm as such. It wasn't a bit of code, but it was a, a policy that people had worked out. But you could see what it was. It was visible. The difficulty we've got with social media is that I don't know. I mean, I know what is on YouTube, but I, oh, I can't find out, but I don't know what is being served to you. And, of course, with TikTok, I don't even know what the universe is. Now, look, these companies, they say, this is you're literally asking us for the most commercial crown jewels, this is this is our business. You're asking, this is like asking Coca-Cola for the recipe for Coke. But we, we're going to have to get some transparency here, haven't we, Bass? And haven't we got to actually ensure that people are not being taken down rabbit holes that are making them angrier, less trusting, you know, basically further dividing society? Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, and it's not to say that it isn't terribly difficult. It is difficult, but I, I think we've got to stop saying it's impossible because our adversaries and our rivals, authoritarian regimes, they are proving that controlling these technologies isn't impossible. We do have rules in other areas. We've been able to work out uh, you know, food safety standards. At our customs border, we know what is coming in uh, or we're supposed to know what is coming in. So it shouldn't be different online. And I think to, for too long, some of the big tech companies some of the entrepreneurs uh, have been able to get away with saying, government, stay out of the way. If you get involved, you're going to stifle innovation. So government involvement is absolutely vital, just as it is in other areas like food standards, uh, like therapeutic goods. All these areas uh, have a set of standards that we can have a level of trust in. And it goes to your point uh, before uh, that we do really risk, whether it be the, uh, the level of disinformation uh, online, that not only do we face that disinformation, but it will also create a level of distrust in all information. Uh, and so even credible information that governments and, and other sectors of society are trying to get out there won't be believed. So we have both those elements that, are, that we really do face unless governments and industry work together and say, the answer here is not inertia. We're going to work together to solve this, the problem. Absolutely agree with you. And, and you know, the, the point about trust is, is fundamental. I mean, Steve Bannon, who, you know, is the sort of evil genius behind Trump or one of the evil geniuses behind Trump, has a great evil saying, which is flood the zone with shit. And what that means is pump out so much misleading, crazy stuff that people are yep. confused, they don't trust anything and once they don't trust anything, you, they, are, they can be sold on anything as well. Yeah. 
Now, of course, you know, a cynic would say politicians do a pretty good job undermining trust in institutions themselves, so they hardly need a lot of help. But if you get to the point where you don't trust, so you don't trust the doctors uh, when they tell you you should have a vaccine, you don't trust the politicians, you don't trust the courts, you don't trust the police, well, that then is a society that's starting to fall to bits. Completely right. And, and I think for me, uh, Malcolm, if we're going to make mistakes in our society, uh, I'd rather be making a mistake uh, based on what the Australian government uh, is is saying to us, what Australian politicians are saying to us, right or wrong, without having to worry about whether what I'm being told is being fed by a foreign intelligence service or a foreign government. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, look, it may not... Uh, they, the Australian parliamentarians may be uh, terribly disappointing, incompetent, but at least they're our terribly disappointing, incompetent politician and we can chuck them out every three years. So, Bass, thank you very much. It's been great to see you again and uh, look forward to having a chat, another chat soon. Absolute pleasure, anytime. The podcast was written and produced by myself and Lisa Main. Music was composed by Helena Chaika.